Samantha Manguana is an extremely successful employment lawyer who gained a name for discrimination cases within the City of London. Now practicing in Sydney, Australia, she's a superb example of how the profession has modernized in recent years, not least because of the fact that 75% of her fellow students at law school were women. When it comes to the professions and attitudes towards them, how does Australia compare to the UK? Because there's been a lot of talk recently, for example, about social mobility and the professions in the UK. There is there is probably still an a sort of establishment elite to a degree. Um, it's obviously a lot a lot younger than in the UK. But in other ways, I'd say quite different in terms of social mobility, because there's a huge ethos in Australia of everyone having a fair go. So that that translates into people actually being pretty supportive if you try something new, even if it's risky, even if they can see problems with it. You're more supported, I think, in that respect. Most of the law clerks who work with us study for a lot longer at university while they do law degrees, but also work. And quite often they're working full-time and studying part-time. I think that that brings a, a change in terms of the types of people who see the legal profession as something that they can enter. You're doubly qualified, aren't you? Because you've got an MBA as well. So you, you must have an interesting perspective on, on the law as a business and, and how different it is. And the other thing we're seeing now is, certainly in London, is a number of firms listing on the, on the markets. Tell me what your, your thoughts are about that. Well, yes. And, and I work for Slater & Gordon, which was the first listed law firm in the UK. Um, that was the Australian entity that came over to the UK. And now in Australia, I work for the other major listed law firm called Shine Lawyers. So it's entirely the environment that has challenged that old partnership model. But although it's relatively unusual to be listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. What is far more common is that a lot of law firms have moved away from the partnership structure in Australia and moved to an incorporated structure, so private limited companies. That's obviously attractive because of the limited liability. And it, it's, it's increasingly common it has meant that it is probably more older traditional firms that maintain the partnership model. Um, and there's a lot of external expertise in management from excellent quality managers on the business side who aren't necessarily legally qualified. There is now a real war for talent within the legal profession, isn't there? I mean, one reads, you know, in the Financial Times and the Times week in, week out about the extraordinary sums of money that newly qualified are paid. And even investment bankers look agog at that these days, I think because it's sort of quite hidden and it doesn't publicise itself often all that much. People don't realise the extent to which it is hugely successful in the UK, do they? is a bit misleading as an indicator of the whole profession, which 
you know, really has extraordinary range and, you know, it doesn't represent at all what trainee legal aid practice lawyers are, are receiving or areas where people have to work as paralegals for years before they get a look in. But it represents the areas of practice most akin to and working with people like investment banks. You're a specialist and an expert in employment law. I mean, do you think that those lawyers who work with financial services and private equity and banks and M&A and deals, are they in a sort of separate sort of category almost these days? It's interesting that you say the area that I specialised in, because actually it gave me a degree of insight about working conditions across a spectrum of different fields. It's right to say the firm that I joined was an old traditional trade union law firm that then evolved into acting for private individuals. And over time, actually, I worked most closely with executives in the financial and legal sectors. So that's probably where I had most of an interest. But I think when it comes to any professional service, really, you are focusing on particular markets and how things are structured within that market. So just as I worked with a lot of city professionals, um, investment bankers, asset managers, as, as well as lawyers and law firm partners, my colleagues might have been specialising in different trades and professions. And I wonder what you think about the professions reputationally at the moment, because one of the other things that's been in the news over the last few weeks here are the revelations in the in the Pandora Papers, for example. I think some people wonder whether the UK's leading professional services firms appear to be sort of enablers of slightly shady behaviours by the very rich. Do you think that there has been any reputational damage due to things like that? I mean, I'm talking particularly about London now. I think my take on it is actually that's too easy a way to look at it. And perhaps it's a bit similar to those headlines about newly qualified pay in the city. A bit of the politics of envy getting a quick headline. I think that the enablers are actually the governments that avoid transparency legislation and permit loopholes. It's actually all in their hands. And if they want it to be illegal, it can be. This might sound like a strange analogy, but I think about parking and when you get a parking ticket. And it's fair enough to get a parking ticket if you park on a double yellow. You know that you shouldn't be doing that. Um, But if you park somewhere where there's no parking signs and you've managed to find this spot then why should you get a parking ticket there? And if if people are instructing professional services firms to help them work out where they can get the best parking, what what actually is the problem with that? If it's a place that shouldn't be parked on, it's up to the government to put a double yellow there. Sure. No, I think that's I think that's very true, isn't it? But it it is interesting that there is a degree of sort of aligned behaviour going on with international money now, if you like. It's very, it's fascinating observing Ireland, for example, sort of moving its corporate tax rates up because the whole 
global fair tax issue is a, is, is a very pressing one, isn't it? It is, although those levels seem to start pretty low. And actually, I think in Australia, there's even a bit of pressure to reduce corporation tax levels now because of, of that global threshold. But yes, I, I think that is where the attention should should probably focus. If, if something is to change, then it's tackling the vested interests who are doing the lobbying, who are keeping the ability to hide money and allow for complex vehicles that that keep it untouched. To what degree is someone of your generation? Has being a woman made it easier, more difficult? Or, you know, is, is the playing field levelling up now? Because certainly if you come from your parents' generation in law and you were a woman, it would have been much more difficult to, to get to partnership level, wouldn't it, within a law firm? Uh, I anticipate so, yes, unless it was a very small law firm. My mum was actually the first, in India, the first intake ever of women to her medical college. So that was a very different experience to me going through education. I, I went to a girls' school. I never perceived that there would be barriers for me if I was good at my getting my grades at law school when I went through it it was three quarters female so although that's not replicated then in the legal profession when you move into it 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 didn't feel to me like I was you know emerging from a man's world or in a man's profession then I, I guess I don't really know why but the area that I ended up in has always been very well, during my time in law has always been very female dominated. So more employment lawyers are, are women than men, although um, there is this generational issue where at, at the top level, um, more senior partners were male until my generation has really seen that shift. When you think about the next 10 years and the way in which your profession might develop, one of the things we hear a lot about is the advent of artificial intelligence and tech. That There have even been books about the death of the professions. You know, doctors will be replaced by robots, surgeons as well, and accountants. How do you see the next couple of decades as far as law is concerned? I don't want to be too flippant about it, but I think that there has probably been a bit too much doom and gloom expressed. Is it really such a bad thing if the repetitive less interesting work is taken out of the equation. I know that there's been a lot of hand-rigging, that without performing kind of the donkey work, that's how lawyers hone their skills and junior lawyers won't be able to progress from a standing start to quality experienced practitioners. But I'm just not sure that's really true. You know, we've all seen during the pandemic how quickly we've been able to pivot to new ways of working, much of which has been transformational and will stay for good. All the professions will just adapt to having new tools and technology. I remember at school trying not to rely on a calculator to practice mental arithmetic and learn long division and all of those things. But I've never needed any of that since school. 
And that doesn't mean it wasn't a great exercise to learn it, but I'd have to check my mental arithmetic with a calculator. I, I don't think that because people stopped using an abacus, they became worse at their jobs. 